1: have indeed found no proscenium, the voice of everything immersive. I'm your host, Noah Nelson. This week on the show, we will take you from the virtual Burning Man Playa of BRCVR to a chat with the author of Tamara, the original hit immersive play, which is celebrating its 40th anniversary with a new printing of the text that dropped just this month. That plus we check in with Scott Stein of CNET. Bring you an all new immersive 101 and the pick of the week, all of which is brought to you by our amazing Patreon backers. Help the cause at patreoncom no persinium. But first, headlines.
2: Hello, this is Catherine Yu, executive editor of No Persinium, and here's what's in the immersive headlines for August 13th. Behind the scenes of the fall of Georgia's Serenby Playhouse, Niantic tells us we're getting the metaverse wrong progress on Punch Drunk's new home in London, and a report about the future of theater from Sundance. First off, a lengthy expose from Jim Farmer in American Theater reveals unsafe working conditions, racial insensitivity, sexual harassment, and more at Serenby Playhouse located outside of Atlanta. In the article, several former cast and crew members describe the hostile work environment created by an abusive creative director and the board who turned the other way at his behavior. The now former creative director of the company departed in fall of 2019 and, oddly enough, has moved to Florida, where he is now running for office as a self-declared Trump-loving Republican. The Serenby organization has also since rebranded itself. Previously, this outdoor theater company was best known for creating productions with a whole lot of spectacle, including a staging of Miss Saigon with a real helicopter landing. Next up, hot on the heels of the Ariana Grande concert in Fortnite, Niantic CEO John Henke tells us we are all getting the metaverse wrong. It's not about the latest walled garden from Roblox or Facebook, or even the multiplayer VR escape as depicted in Ready Player One. Says Henke, quote, as a society, we can hope that the world doesn't evolve into the kind of place that drives sci-fi heroes to escape into a virtual one, or we can work to make sure that doesn't happen, end quote. In The essay Hiking goes on to describe a world where you can overlay your favorite IP onto everything around you using augmented reality. The blog post also coincides with a recent Pokemon Go fan protest regarding accessibility in the game after Niantic announced it would raise the minimum distance required to interact with a Pokestop or gym back to pre-pandemic levels. Those against the change note that the current design allows more people, including disabled players, to safely participate. Next in a presentation to some local councillors, it looks like Punchdrunk's upcoming move to Woolrich's royal arsenal is progressing nicely. The popular theatre company will be moving its London headquarters into buildings seventeen, eighteen, and 19, across from the new Woolrich Works venue. Punchdrunk's renovations were slightly delayed by the pandemic, but the plan is to open two of these buildings to the public in spring. The company's new lease will be for five years. Sundance has also just released the results of an independent study about the future of theater and live performance. It's called Emerging from the Cave. The study consisted of interviews with over 70 artists and arts workers analyzing their experiences during the pandemic and the Black Lives Matter uprising in 2020. Among the findings identified are a greater need for collective leadership in theater, more holistic support of artists, potential around cross-disciplinary and hybrid artistic practices, which also include technology, and the need for the field itself to start having big, collective discussions about its future. And lastly, in a fun promotion for Reese's Puffs, the cereal's new packaging allows you to make your own augmented reality drum machine at the breakfast table. Simply place some of the cereal pieces on the back of the limited edition box and open up their custom web AR app. The music generated by the app changes with the placement of the serial pieces. So if anybody out here is laying down some sick serial beats, please do let us know. And these have been your Immersive Headlines.
1: Joining us now is Doug Jacobson, the chief creative officer and co-founder, along with Athena Demos, of BRC VR, the virtual Burning Man event that happens inside Altspace VR. BRCVR won a Producers Guild Award for its 2020 edition, which was part of the Virtual Burn Week last year, and it returns next weekend for the 2021 Virtual Burn Week. Longtime readers and listeners also know it was one of our favorite things of 2020, and we're looking forward to getting back out into the digital dust. Doug, thank you for joining us on the show.
3: Thanks for having me.
1: Before we get into this year's event, or even the last year's for that matter, uh, BRCVR was in development long before COVID was a gleam in the devil's eye. Um, what was the spark in the first place?
3: Way back in uh, 2015, a guy I know named Greg Edwards had uh, made a sort of single-player Google Cardboard virtual playa. And um, he had teamed up with Athena back then, and they pitched it to bernie man and i and i guess bernie man was loved it but didn't know what to do with it back then and so he put it on, on the shelf essentially last year as um as COVID started hitting i started thinking like we should all be hanging out in vr and uh, i had a oculus go and i started going into various platforms and i had a birthday coming up and i thought well The way things are going, you know, my birthday, maybe we'll, you know, I'll start throwing parties in VR and then when my birthday comes around, I'll get all my friends in. So um, I started picking a platform to do this. And I went to VR Chat, and I went to Altspace and I went to Big uh, um, big Screen uh, and uh, a few others that I could get to on my go at the time. And um, I just like the vibe at Altspace, Um, you know, and I just picked it. Um, no more than just liking the vibe. And then so um, as I was hanging out in Altspace going uh, with my friend Lindsay, we, we were hanging out a lot in Altspace. I saw somebody had shot a photogrammic world or, you know, an uploaded it to Altspace. It was janky, but it was, it was pretty cool. And it made a light bulb go off in my head. I'm like, well, if I'm going to throw my birthday at this house we always throw my birthday at, what if we scan the house in VR mm. and then through the birthday virtually? Wouldn't that be cool? Okay, great. I know this guy with a, with a Mataport camera, which is for photogrammic scanning. So I called up the guy, I was hoping to be Greg, and I said, hey, uh, Greg, uh, do you have an extra scan lying around I could test upload to see if this could work? And he said, yeah, you know, and he sent me one. He said, uh, why don't you try uploading my old Burning Man world? So I did, and he and I were standing on the playa together, and we realized this is kind of cool. Now we're together on playa as opposed to a solo experience. Yeah. <clears throat> I said, well, we'll just start working on this. And then a week later, Burning Man canceled, and then it was a, it was a um, rocket ride. From then on, what we did not know was that AltSpace Space that we picked, uh, that I had just picked, you know, the the mythology is that it was purchased in a tent at Burning Man, <laughs> and that <laughs> a lot of the people who are involved in AltSpace Space and that part of Microsoft are have a, are burners and have a camp. Called Playa Alchemist at Burning Man, so oh, there was a really goodness. deep Burning Man connection already. Yeah, and the platform had some of that burner principles baked into it when it was invented uh, by, uh,
1: by so Gavin
3: Whitty, I think. The name.
1: So that so the the Playa Alchemist camp in BRCVR, which is the alt space camp, and is like super built out yeah and and you know like you know feature feature heavy as as you say that is that is a virtual manifestation of a real camp that had already existed, and that was the alt spacer's actual camp of the burn that's right, oh my God,
3: alchemist is a real camp, it is a pyramid, and if you google it, um you'll see what it looks like, and they they've recreated it they've it's some flourishes, um, but <laughs> they're like hey we're we're burners we're going to go all out and they did, and it's a beautiful, beautiful world. Uh, in all space, so so there was a lot of synergy there. Yeah. Um,
1: synergy and synchronicities, yeah, definitely.
3: Yeah.
1: Um, it it really feels like your objective was to capture the vibe of the burn, and that was like e- even more more important than the look. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about capturing that feeling in a VR setup that can at times may feel like everyone's Playmobil people. Uh, there's nothing right. wrong with being Playmobil people, right. but like. People tend to go default to like, oh, like I want to look realistic, but this feels realistic. How did you? How did you chase that?
3: Well, I think that you know one of Athena's specialties is community, and um, both me and Athena have been Athena and I grammatically grammatically correct there um, have been going to Bernie Man. Uh, I've been going since ninety eight, and she since ninety nine, and we knew this world cold. Like we knew all the inside jokes. We knew the little details already, and we knew, and we would all, and then we had other team members, Justin, and other people who had been um, old school burners, and we were, just, oh, what if we had this thing in there? What if we put this in there? And so we started, we started realizing that, you know, we want to see, you know, we were all very, this COVID virus coming around, we we were feeling nostalgic for the burn of the past, mm. and we really wanted to go get some pieces that we all loved from the past because we had this rare opportunity to recreate them and put them into into the play. this is for the old school burners who come in to go oh i remember you know i remember that piece you know uh, we had one piece called helios kate ron made burned in 2018 resurrected in the vr world and you know and it's just this kind of um this kind of thing and then also we realized People want to get together with their friends and go on adventures. And it's really yeah. hard to get together with your friends, go on adventures on a Zoom call. Oh my god. So
1: <laughs> so oh god, just the word alone. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, tough. Tell, like that was the nightmare of, of this past year for me. It was like, right. you know, I, I spent five years on a Monday morning Zoom call. And the minute the pandemic hit, everyone was like, We'll do immersive theater on Zoom. And I was like, <laughs> Am I being it, was this designed to torture me specifically? Like, right, like right, this feels—it feels, you know, it feels like I've been cursed torture. by, it's like globally who, tortureful. Yeah, who who um, is the demon of Zoom calls? But but when <laughs> I was there, you know, because there's there are I have specific memories of BRCVR last year that were one. The first time that entire summer where I got to really hang out with my friends in the manner that I prefer, which is wandering around a large space and just trying to hold everybody together and maybe failing, totally. but like enjoying that, that push and pull of like, where's Ivan? Where's Ivan? He's exactly. over there. Go, can someone go get him? No, you guys stay here. I'll go get him. Um,
3: I know. I was so surprised. We were having the same conversations that I had on Playa. Um, My solution on playa for herding cats is that I have this, I buy the most powerful flashlight I could possibly (laughs) find. And I put the beam up in the air and the dust makes it like shoot up and everyone can follow me. And I always set waypoints like, okay, everybody, we're walking to, you know, eight o'clock in Esplanade. And um, that's where we're going. So if you make it there, that's great. (laughs) You know, (laughs) kind of thing. And I found myself doing stuff like that on the virtual playa yeah and people be and then people doing uh, uh what is that what's that thing well I don't know what's that thing let's go check it out a lot of that as well
1: yeah, it's funny it's like once you've had you know the the spatial reality ripped away from you and like everything's just like flattened out into screens or the only way you're communicating with people, you start to realize that all the stuff that's so frustrating about hurting cats is actually the thing that mm-hmm. m- makes other people kind of enjoyable as entities
3: i know and you know it's funny because the the experience on the vr headset versus the 2d screen you know it's hard to get the translation looking at a 2d graphics it looks like um you're just walking around in a video game you know Mm -hmm. so it looks like you know from a couple years ago, it's not even like the latest graphics. It's you know because we're comparing it down into a VR headset. But once you strap on that headset and you have and you look around and you walk, um, none of that matters. It it feels good when you're in the headset, unless you get nauseous and then it doesn't feel so good. But uh, what I mean is that you're you know you're you're in a full you're fully immersed and it's really challenging to translate that. Is you know when I show video clips of us all hanging out in BRCVR, it looks like. It, it doesn't quite translate the way. And Burning Man doesn't quite translate on a 2D screen uh, yeah. either. I, I made a Burning Man doc uh, called "Turn of the Flames years ago. And I um, always struggled. Like, how do we capture Burning Man? Like, how can we capture Burning Man? Like, every time I show the video, it's people like, that's really cool. But it doesn't quite hit like it was when you were there because you're not looking around in 360-degree space and seeing stuff going on. Yeah. Um, you're watching a 2D flat thing, and the VR gives you that, which is great.
1: What's We're, we're, we're coming up on time here, but like, what's on tap for this year's virtual burn at BRCVR?
3: This year, um, we are free again. Um, we tried to do ticketing. It didn't work out. We, it was too many complications, and we thought, eh, the, you know. So we're going to uh, – anyone can come in. We recommend you get in early, set up your account now. We already got stuff going on. We already have worlds up. Time to start, you know, practicing getting in and learning is now uh, at altvr.com. And then we're going to have a, a museum of all the temples. We, we're, we had modelers volunteer to build temples. So we have all 20 or so temples So uh, from the past and we all, we have a little museum of all the man bases from 1986 on. Wow. So we're going to have all the man bases, all the temples, and we're going to have some, um, I'm focusing on hub worlds, which is sort of like um, scenes at Burning Man. Like, um, because, you know, the main playa is sort of low poly, uh, low polygon to fit it all on that thing. And then you get into a portal and then you're at the like piece of art that's, higher polygon uh, higher res well what if i make the background lower polygon but put a bunch of high-res stuff together so it feels like burning man so uh we have these hub worlds where you'll be able to walk from you know disoriented to decadent oasis and hear music and it's meant to be a structured space but you see the whole city in the background and you feel like you're there rather than going and visiting just a solo art project so i'm trying Mm. to make hub worlds oh cool and um we're going to try to set up a green screen and green screen acts and bring them in our eyes are bigger than our stomach. Though. We'll see how it goes.
1: But it's such a, it's such a wonderful experiment. And just the, the, the number of things that got pulled off last year were kind of like really amazing. So I'm glad you guys' his eyes are still bigger than your stomach.
3: Yeah. Well, wait till you see. Uh, we have a, a really great guy, John Riggs, working on El Pulpo Mechanico. It is epic. We're going to have the best version of that for the playa, the octopus with the flames that everybody loves. Um, it's going to be a really great car. So we have some really cool things. So, uh, you know, and whether the Delta variant comes in or not, or how many people show up or not, I just, you know, it's hard for me to worry about all that, although I do. Um, we're just going to have a great time and hang out with some great people and um, have a, have fun no matter what happens, frankly.
1: I have, I have one kind of ridiculous question for okay, you. Okay, let's do it. All right. When you get back to the Playa, Mm -hmm. will it be weird not to be able to fly?
3: We are really going to miss flying. However, we think that a couple years of BRCVR is going to start affecting the Playa, where we think that there's going to be like people making emojis coming up, like heart emojis. We think people are going to redo the flight stick and hand out flight sticks. There's (laughs) going to be a lot of cross-virtual... And we're going to do hybrid. We're going to try to... Do things on Playa that show up in our virtual world and vice versa. So, we're we're hoping to hybrid the event next year. We're very, we have, again, our eyes are bigger, so, but we're going to model up some. I mean, we should make 3D print some, you know, flight sticks and okay. hand them out to people. And, and some people will be like, what's this? And some people are like, I know what this is.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Some people I can't wait. Some people know. I want to. So, I love,
3: so <laughs> I love flying.
1: Oh, my God. It's so much fun. All right. Well, Doug. Thank you so much for giving us the, the brief history and yeah. a quick preview of BRCVR. Thanks for having
3: me. This is fun.
1: Doug and I talked for about, I think, like 20 or 30 minutes more uh, after we closed off the first part of the interview. That will be dropping into the Patreon bonus feed in not too long. If you're interested, go ahead and check it out at patreon.com slash no proscenium. It will be hitting, if nothing else, during the week of the virtual burn. We've come back to my favorite part of the show and yours, where Catherine Yu, executive editor of No Prescinium, brings us some Immersive 101. Hey, Catherine.
2: Hi, Noah. So good to be back.
1: Uh, What uh, do you have for us this week?
2: So I was thinking we could discuss a very common format of immersive experiences known as the sandbox.
1: All right. The sandbox. I mean, I think we all know what a sandbox is. So uh, it's something you play in when you're a kid. So how does that pertain to immersive and and why is it here with all of our theater stuff?
2: Right. So... First off, some of the most famous immersive theater pieces use a sandbox format like Sleep No More. It comes to us from the video game world. So think of an open world video game, a sandbox video game where you're not necessarily being explicitly uh, directed what you're supposed to do next, where you're supposed to go. You're allowed to explore Linger if you want, speed through stuff if you want. So, for example, at the McKittrick Hotel, once you enter the experience, you can roam from room to room, you can open drawers, you can look at letters. And if you want to follow an actor, you can. And if you want to go with the crowd, you can. But also, if you want to explore to your heart's content whatever catches your fancy, you can. So Uh, There's a lot less structure in this kind of experience because it's mimicking that open world feel, that open exploration feel, and it really allows the individual to choose their own path to kind of curate their journey during the experience.
1: Now, Now, you say there's a lot less structure. So does that mean that just like anything's happening willy nilly? Or is it just that there's a lot less structure for you?
2: There's a lot less structure for you, the participant. So while the main action from a narrative standpoint might be on a specific schedule or timetable, you're not necessarily as a participant beholden to following what everyone else is doing at a particular moment in time.
1: So kind of go back to an earlier conversation of ours about agency, which if you haven't heard the show before, you can flip back a couple episodes and find. Uh this sounds like you have a lot of agency in a sandbox.
2: Definitely and more specifically when we're thinking about the different flavors of agency this is agency of focus, agency of perspective, agency of movement.
1: Right. Sometimes I think uh you know coming from the video game world uh we'll often call this uh you know traversal agency. You can tra- traverse around the space. Which just means you can move about the space, but Traversal sounds fun. So everyone yeah, uses traversal. Definitely. and <laughs> Spider-Man traverses through mm-hmm, New York City. Mm-hmm.
2: The other thing to note is even though you may be in a sandbox, the creators will often try to draw your attention towards big linchpin or tentpole events. And so it is still your choice whether or not you want to go, for example, look at the banquet table scene during Sleep No More. But if you want to ignore that, that is your prerogative.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so much of it comes down to managing the audience's attention. And it's, it becomes a challenge. But in so many ways, it can often really pay off. Because the, from an audience perspective, at least my own experience of it, it always feels like you made the choice to be there.
2: Definitely. And if something catches your eye, if you see a performer, like sprinting off somewhere, go and follow them to your heart's content. That's what a sandbox is great at.
1: All right. Anything else we should know about a sandbox before we let people go about their merry way?
2: I think one thing that is really interesting about the sandbox format is that you will see people who might be a little bit uncomfortable at first, and it kind of lets you dip your toe in the immersive waters before you go deeper.
1: All right. Well, you, dear listener, have full agency, so feel free to move about the cabin, and we'll be back next week with another immersive 101. Thanks, Catherine.
4: I'm David Spira from roomescapeartist.com, and I'd like to invite you to our immersive gaming convention, Recon, the Reality Escape convention. Recon is being held digitally this year, August 22nd and 23rd, and has programming and games for players, creators, and the immersive gaming curious. Basic access includes all of the talks as well as our ARG, and that ticket is pay what you want. Players should consider buying a Game Pass for access to tons of gaming content, much of which is only available through Recon. Those in the industry, adjacent industries, or are thinking about getting involved should pick up a Pro Ticket for access to live workshops, facilitated discussions, and other perks. This event is a labor of love, and we fuss about all of the details, from the featured talks down to our swag. I hope that you'll join us to learn and play. You can learn more at realityescapecon.com.
1: Once again, we've reached that part of the show where we check in with one of our friends from around the Immersiverse. This week, it's Scott Stein of CNET, who we haven't talked to in a while. Scott, how's it going?
5: Hey, I'm great. Good to talk to you.
1: Uh, I hear you're living in Samsung land right now.
5: I am. I've got watches on my wrist and phone in my pocket. I'm testing. I'm back in the, the smartwatch land, which is, always gives me a nostalgic feeling. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Well, uh, we won't be going in-depth on Samsung smartwatches right now, but I do want to talk about something else you've been doing for CNET lately. You did a, a, a big piece about the metaverse, which, uh, like Hansel, is so hot right now.
5: It is. I, I, I knew I had to do this at some point. I, I didn't know when, and I just it, it was some point where I said, okay, I've just got to put down some thoughts on this and help at least explain it. Because I think for all that I assume that people know what's going on, it's a buzzword most people start to glaze out on it and i don't even know if i explained it right but i did it did what makes sense to me
1: so i mean what what are people because because i how do i put this <laughs> i i've had metaverse as a term since the early 90s when it first showed up and i just default to that definition how are people kind of understanding it right now? And we've we've had Neil Stevenson on the show, and I asked him, I asked him if people are using it right, and he was kind of like, "Well, I don't want to disappoint anybody." Yeah, <laughs> so exactly. So like he punted, but uh, and he's the guy who made up the term. But like, how are people? Is there consensus? What are people doing with this thing right now? What's the matter?
5: Um, <laughs> right. I think there's the literary. Philosophical discussion of what a metaverse is, and then there's what's going on right now with everyone talking about metaverses. And I feel that the latter is the one I'm most interested in because also the names might change. Like I feel like the internet, you know, there's information superhighway. There, there, there were a lot of internet terms flying around when, um, when, when everything was taking off in the '90s. Maybe we're having that now where we don't know, you know, AR, VR, XR. It, It gets people angry and fired up in the industry. You know, where you say. You know, this is the term we've decided on the term, but like it's, it's still very early days. Uh, the metaverse, I think of it as helpful when I listen to it. Obviously, snow crash sure, uh, people kind of blend it with, um, you know, VR and, and, you know, the Oasis and all that other stuff. Uh, I think it's showing up right now because more as a sign that not everybody's in VR. So I, mm. I responded to it as a flag that. You know, when Facebook talked about becoming a metaverse company or making the metaverse part of its Facebook reality labs, I look at that as um, all the other stuff they need to build slash all the other people that are not in VR. Who knows if that's right, but I think it is.
1: Yeah. I mean, I always just think of it as like the digital shadow, right? Like if the spirit realm were, were bits and bobs, Then and like computerized, then that's what the metaverse would be. Like, I I mean, I, I gotta admit, I, I walk around sometimes and just randomly think about the question. I wish I didn't, but I do.
5: It makes sense. It's like the digital twin. It's the, you know, counterpart, your alternate world. It's the, the, the digital twinning thing. Um, But at the same time, what I think is going on, I think about the last year and the the whole pandemic phase. And I, I wrote something last year Thinking about this, when everybody was starting to go really big on, um, oh, VR is so cool, uh, again, um, you know, going through these cycles. And I was more struck that virtual, the idea of virtual at that point has been continuously kind of redefined. People, everything's virtual. uh, Not many people were talking about it for VR. And so at that point, you have everybody glomming theater, uh, work, all these other things. That are not my my kids playing Fortnite, all this other stuff, and you know whatever they're playing next, and I think that whole interconnected stuff constitutes virtual. My feeling is that metaverse is trying to grasp that somehow, but yes, it also seems to me to be the social world. Like you have these alt space VRs and rec rooms, and you've had these things for a while, Second Life, and going way back. That seemed to me that the the home that you live in, that you do things, that the place you go to is part of that. But it seems like the way it's being instituted now is the massive interconnectedness of it and a place that you can go to outside of VR, but also to build a, a home that future AR stuff can tap into. This is like the bridge yeah. um, in some ways.
1: Well, speaking of like AR, we were talking before we turned the microphones on. And you said something interesting about AR. And I wondered if you could like share that. Share that with yeah. the class, please. So. Uh,
5: yes. Um, well, it's summer anyhow, but it's been slow. Um, and it's been slow for a while, but it just kind of strikes me. And I know companies have had all sorts of delays. There have been chip delays. There have been slowdowns, offices working remotely. It still does feel slow. And I think that we we still at the cresting midway 21, don't see any AR headsets, not even consumer, but we don't really see any, period, that are that are around to try, you know, Snapchat's AR glasses or a dev kit. And then you wonder when will it happen? And then you look towards like Facebook's and announced that its product for the fall are those Ray-Ban smart glasses, which are clearly not going to be AR. Uh, I think they're going to be less than you might expect, but they're also claiming they'll have some element of, of, you know, connecting you, I guess is the conversation,
1: but, but I, see- I I had missed, I had missed that actually, like, are, is there going to be display function or is it going to be audio? Like, like the th- bows were that I got think pulled these off are- the market
5: we don't really know everything at all. Huh. We know very little. They've been sort of just teasing bits, but I think very it's cheesy. going to be audio like Facebook's been playing an audio now for the past year. Right. been interested in audio. Audio was also talked about as like a key step. Like we, we've talked this, we know this in the, in XR spatial audio for all that is key. It seems like a very attainable goal and is right now for, um, for AR more so than visual. And so I think that, um, I think that's where they're going to use it maybe as an explorational tool for that. Uh, maybe, maybe I, I would imagine to have spatial audio and do something interesting there, but who knows? Yeah, it's it's weird. And but looking at that and thinking of that as kind of a stepping stone, and then how many more products do we have until we get to the AR glasses makes me wonder what is AR going to be for people. It's still something that people hear about, but they don't really have a firm grasp of even after all this time. And I think that while the experiments are very interesting, then we go to like speaking of the metaverse. um, Niantic has been making acquisitions. They bought a 3D scanning company, uh, scanning app, Scaniverse. Um, This is interesting to me because I feel like that whole 3D scanning landscape keeps dovetailing with people trying to map the world uh, and do it collaboratively to get sort of like a grid to agree upon and play on. Yeah. That se- the glue of it still seems to be very much at play and everyone's trying to figure their way out of it. On a side note, um Nantic CEO had a whole commentary on the metaverse himself. And it was it was kind of funny only because when I read it, it was positioning AR as separate from the supposedly dystopic metaverse. I say supposedly dystopic because I don't think that's been determined yet. I think the idea like, there have been commentaries. In my opinion, the metaverse being a by its by its concept dystopic. I think to me it's like cyberspace. You know, yeah, like that would be like saying the internet by its definition is is dystopic. I I don't know. I guess you could do it for all technology. I mean, so, I
1: mean, I mean, it, it's, <laughs> it's it's funny. It's like it. yeah. you know, Gibson tried to warn us. Stevenson tried to warn us. Klein said it was a party. Um, Two of those guys turned out to be right. I guess you can figure out which one was wrong (laughs) by doing the math. Um, And, But I also think of, say, like, you know, Doug Rushkoff, like, in the 90s, being very bullish on what the internet was going to do for all of us. And then the Doug Rushkoff, you know, by the time Occupy Wall Street comes along being very bearish on what the internet has done, done to us. Yeah. Um, when we look at the, the media theory of it all.
5: Well then also the whole, um, the whole idea of AR, it's not AR versus the metaverse or he was talking about right. uh, reality. Rea- uh, John he was talking about reality channels and the way that works and connecting us more to the real world, I think that was the same debate that was happening with smartwatches, with Google Glass, with a lot of tech about connecting us more, digital assistance. Um, I, and I, it's funny because when I hear the metaverse conversation lately, and we think about some people leap right to Ready Player One, a lot of people leap right to Ready Player One, uh, the idea that you're escaping to this other world. To me, the metaverse, again, because so much of it now is about something that can exist outside of VR. I actually feel like it's reaching for tools and glue that aren't purely in your own blinded world. I think that the metaverse conversation is trying to get to like all of your laptop tools, all your phone tools, all your things like that. And if if that's what the metaverse is partially about, that does not seem like you're living entirely in its walls. So I think that's where (laughs) the metaphor doesn't really apply as we're thinking about it.
1: I never think of it as a walled garden and never have since the beginning. I've always thought of it again, like it's like the the digital twin and that, that what makes, what makes it intriguing is the degree of fidelity. Like if I'm, if I'm walking up to the comic book store and the comic book store's digital twin is also available to me uh, and maybe I could be, Maybe I could be at the comic book store fully by remote or I could be at the comic book store physically. But if I enter into the comic book store physically in and be, use AR tools there that I could also experience the data layer of the comic book store. I went to the comic book store today. That's why I'm saying the comic book store. <laughs> and I was thinking about the metaphors while I was walking to the comic book store. <laughs> so like, it's just, this is, but like thinking about like, what, what would it mean that, you know, that the, that the, uh, the sort of flash frozen in time data so I could like scroll backwards to see what I missed last week, kind of like flipping flipping through like on the timeline.
5: That is, it seems like a a big part or all of your, your data. And I think ecosystem you're right. Like walled garden, it's not necessarily walled garden yet. The same time there's a huge ecosystem play where every company that's in it is playing for an ever larger ecosystem of stuff. And this has been happening already with the big players in tech Outside of this, I think it's part of that. It's interesting. There have been comments about, you know, Facebook, that this is important to them because they never had the phone OS. Now this may be a reality, you know, Metaverse OS. Um, I think it's also interesting because Microsoft, in a way, is like that too. Where Microsoft never really had the phone landscape, but they're also looking. They're they're very active in AR and, and uh, Microsoft Mesh. Maybe that's why Google and Apple are a little calmer with this because, in a sense if you think of the interconnected glue of our like ambient lives or whatever, like the phones have it and they're, they're sitting pretty. And so in a sense, they don't have to reinvent very much because they already are in your pocket. And maybe that's why the thought is to kind of glom that and others are trying to reinvent it. I don't know. I, I do think it expands way beyond headsets. That's where it gets interesting. And that's why I think everyone's kind of re drawing new umbrellas over everything
1: well we could go on on this one at length <laughs> yeah. but I think we'll 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 check back in in uh, a few months and see where the where the conversation has gone uh, before we head out, uh, a little bit of dessert for everybody uh, anything anything nifty that uh, that folks in the community might want to keep their eye on?
5: yeah, I'm really excited about things that are not on my head um, actually gaming there's a lot of handheld gaming systems coming out this fall. And I find that really interesting. I, I think it, I think it's meaningful in some way, even though they're all a lot of them are delayed from previous ones. Panic Playdate is one that I'm super excited about, but I've not yet tried. It's a little crank-enabled bespoke headset by the uh, the same game studio that made uh, Untitled Goose Game, and it's 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 interesting because it delivers these games as a subscription that's all inclusive with the purchase of it, and they pop up like little surprises on the handheld and what it made me think of in so many ways is in the, uh, the, the past year, all these like um, theater pieces that send you a mystery box or, you know, an escape room in a box or these, the magic of these interactive items um, that you can explore at home and be immersed in. And I think that there's immersive magic in that. I think the play date sounds immersive in its own little special way. And I think it's an interesting thought about like where you can strive for like home connection to people beyond just something that goes on your eyes. And maybe I'm stretching a bit too far, but I think people still want to hunger for that. People are going to have a hard time traveling still. Um, and also the world's changing. So I think it's like um, I like that play date model. Like I kind of want to see more games and experiences that have a little magic inventiveness to them.
1: Yeah, more more touch points for, for everybody. So, Scott, thank you for giving us uh, some stuff to chew on for the weekend.
5: Yeah, thank you. Um, I'm just going to be sitting here playing with tech at home because I'm not traveling.
1: <laughs> uh, when people want to follow what you're up to, where should they go?
5: Um, you should check me out at CNET. You can also follow me on Twitter, at Jetscott. I'm always mm-hmm. chattering about whatever I'm thinking about there currently reading a book on smells called Nosedive, which is fantastic.
1: There's more of the show on the way, including our interview with John Krasank, the author of Tamara, and The Pick of the Week. Right now, we want to take a moment to thank our latest backers, Cami Pinto and Adam Jacobs, who by subscribing gain access to the backer-only podcast feed and our growing video library. But Cash isn't the only way you can help us. The number one thing you can do is share this podcast and our weekly review rundown on social. I know, I know it can feel ridiculous. I feel ridiculous saying it, but there's nothing like word of mouth and you have a lot more agency than the algorithm leads you to believe. So if you like this, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at no proscenium and Instagram at no underscore proscenium and hit that share button when the time comes. It really does make a world of difference.
6: Hi, this is Patrick McLean, the Chicago curator with No Proscenium. I'm here to introduce this week's Pick of the Week. Every week we meet in Discord for a review crew where we talk about experiences or events we have recently seen, which you can hear that podcast in your feed right before this one. It's a partner to the review rundown on the site where we talk about all the stuff we've been seeing and enjoying. And this week we have to talk about the pick of the week is...
0: Hi, this is Laura Hess, the arts editor. And what is the pick
6: of the week you have for us?
0: The pick of the week this time is an art exhibition called Divine Immersion the experiential art of Nick Dong, and it's at the USC Pacific Asia Museum in Pasadena, California. What
6: makes this the pick of the week for you?
0: This is the pick of the week because it is, this exhibition is a series of sculptures and spaces. As it mentions in the title, it is truly immersive and interactive. It's a series of moments almost more than it is anything else. And it is incredibly joyful. It's incredibly restorative. And it's something that anyone in or near the LA area, I think, should run and not walk to see.
6: Awesome. And how long
0: is this currently running and how much does it cost? So this is currently running until October 3rd. Cost, depending upon day and um you know, whether you're a student or whether you're a senior, anywhere from free to $10. And the one thing that I really want to cite about this is that Nick Dong, who's an Oakland-based Taiwanese-American artist, has a core philosophy around his work where the work can only be truly complete when the viewer activates it with their energy. So this is not interactive just in a practical way. There is a real exchange of energy that you can feel when you are there moving through these sculptures, these interactive spaces, these rooms. And it is is transcendent. I can't, there's no other way for me really to describe it. It is transcendent.
6: Well, I'm definitely jealous that I can't make it out there, but I really appreciate you taking the time to go experience it and talk about it on the podcast with us.
0: It's my pleasure. Go see it, everybody. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Patrick.
1: Joining us now, we have the honor of having author John Kruzanck, the writer of Tamara, which this year is celebrating its 40th anniversary. Uh, The play has the distinction of still being the longest running play to ever run in Los Angeles, and it is a precursor to all of the immersive work that we know. Uh, John, I'm so grateful to have you on the podcast today.
7: It's a pleasure to be here.
1: Um, when you and director Richard Rose first dreamt up this production, what were your touchstones? Or were you fully in the wilderness on a, a play that had all these moving parts and the audience could follow what characters they wanted to follow and, and switch tracks? Because this,
7: this this was mostly unprecedented at the time. Um, yeah, I, I think, you know, there... <laughs> there were a few things like, um, I think Marie Irene Fournez in New York had done some like what I would call environmental plays, you know, that they, they weren't interactive plays. I mean, Tamera came about really by accident, you know, it was, uh, a, a sort of a, a drunken afternoon to be quite frank on. I remember it was on a Sunday because, uh, well, I had said that, uh, You know, I always liked in in, like in Chekhov how uh, when the servants came on, they were the most interesting characters, but you couldn't follow them. You were always stuck with the masters upstairs and how it would be great to have a play where, you know, you could the audience would get to decide who they wanted to follow. Like, why should it be left to the tyranny of the author? And then, um, uh, that was one tract of this discussion. As I said, there was drinking and, uh, the other, the other was really just the Toronto was coming up with a theater festival, a first international theater festival. And there was a sense that our young company necessary angel should try to do something. Um, I suppose this was the Genesis here was in eighty nineteen eighty, 1980. And, um, but, of course, we didn't have a theater and finding a venue is a problem. And we talked about uh, somehow Casa which is this landmark huge castle that was uh, bankrupted some guy at the turn of the century, some mm-hmm. arms manufacturer. And uh, it's open, you know, for sort of weddings and high school graduation parties and for tours, I suppose. Anyway, I thought, what if we could use an actual building and then we started you know talking about like you know you could uh, and we originally th- thought of it as you know I, I guess this goes back to um the the middle ages when the, you know in their sort of processional plays that that they did um uh, where you know you you uh, would move from one location to the next but then it soon as we were we got there around three o'clock on a Sunday afternoon and we were running around this house and we were kind of drunk and uh, you know, we say, Hey, we could do a scene in this swimming pool and we could do one here and there. And and suddenly like it all that and the checkoff conversation all sort of came together. And we started thinking about, you know, uh, doing this, you know, a, a, a play in this venue, which we ultimately, you know, didn't get, we couldn't afford it. But, um, and then the whole idea of the simultaneity of the action and the multiple characters, all of that sort of came from there. And uh, concurrent to that, uh, I at the time was making a living as the buyer for a bookstore in Toronto. And um, people would just, uh, sales reps would give me new books, you know, to try to encourage me to buy vast quantities of them. And uh, I started uh, um, reading about uh, um, uh, Tamara D'Alimpika because uh, that there had been a, an art book on on her, and little was known about her. But uh, so to supplement the art book uh, with, uh, they they used excerpts from the diary of this guy Gabriele De housekeeper, and I was kind of. Uh, reading them and it was, you know, deliciously wicked stuff, very gossipy and fun. And it seemed to me, I I'd, I remember talking to Richard like, you know, when we're rich and famous, this will be the Visconti movie that we make, you know. The and then that uh, found its way into our Casaloma discussions and our Chekhov discussions, and suddenly it became clear that uh I, you know i should write a play about gabriele d'annunzio and um tim uh visit to his house and you know th- that was sort of the genesis of it but uh, we didn't have any intellectual framework in terms of uh you know uh how, how we were going to sort of you know uh blow up narrative and all of that stuff uh we were just trying to think from an like an audience's point of view mm-hmm. I mean my first play was about a poet named John Krasank who hates the theater and uh, so I think I was still doing the same thing like you know Richard's like my oldest friend from high school uh, you know he uh, he picked me up hitchhiking and he, at the time he was doing musical theater and I was reading Jean Genet and uh, you know s- somehow I corrupted him and uh, you know he, he became a uh, a theater director. Uh, and, uh, um, so we've always had this kind of like, I've always had a love hate thing with the theater. Like, I, I, really don't like the bounds. Like I actually am a, no proceeding guy through and through. And even when I do a play on a stage, People say like it's a three ring circus, you know. <laughs> so uh, I just can't. My brain just can't be contained in those little boxes somehow. So I'm very sympathetic to the audience. And in fact, my the greatest achievement to me of Tamara is just how animated it makes the audience. You know, I mean, it's just a form that is so much better than the actual script or anything that i've done
1: the la run was like nine years do you do you remember when it it went from being a hit to kind of being an institution because nine years is a long run for for any show that isn't phantom of the opera <laughs>
7: <laughs> yeah I, I i know i mean uh, well i mean you have to do take into account uh the uh you know you, unlike phantom which you know you can get four thousand people a night into those big Broadway houses are three thousand. I think uh, you 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 can get uh, uh, you know a hundred and fifteen or twenty people into Tamara. so you can sell out for a good long long time. It, I think the bigger problem was just this was before the internet, so you know this it was very hard to create demand. I mean the the uh, to get the momentum. You know when you're when you, you the word of mouth to build that out that took like you know, a year, you know, mm. at least be like, it became self-sustaining after a time, you know? Um, and, uh, but you know, like, if you look at a show like sleep, no more it can keep going and it has this social media life, uh, but they don't have to advertise. Like they don't have to do a full page ad in the uh, LA times or New York times, or whatever. Did the
1: show at the time, Either in Toronto, LA, or New York, did it inspire any imitators, people trying to copy the format? That's something I've, I haven't caught any wind of. You,
7: you, you know, either. I mean, uh, no, uh, in short, no. I mean, there are shows like um, um, uh, Tony and Tina's Wedding, Wedding. for instance. You're going to see that <laughs> just yeah. in the second we start. Yeah. Right. They came out, I think, just after us. Uh, we had opened first in Toronto, and uh, you know uh, they uh, uh, they came out a little later. But but again, they're not really uh, doing. You know, they are immersive. They are, but they're not interactive. You know, I mean, this is the difference with Tamara and and most of the other shows is it's a completely scripted show. You know, like that it's a, the, and the reason that most people don't do it is they're like not stupid enough to write a 500 page script I mean it's just you know I would never have done it had I known what I was in for and you know the whole like a uh, 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 doing it in toronto i mean like I, i'd be wandering down the hall and then there'd be an actor just standing there and i was like well, what are you doing here he says well i got two minutes with nothing to say like oh shit i better write some dialogue you know and we all of that stuff had to slowly be filled in and we'd have to you know figure out how how to make this story sort of seamless and uh you know it, 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 you'll have to rewrite it for every house you do it in because the timing gets all screwed up and uh it's it's you know from a writer's point of view it's it's just a lot of work
1: (laughs) the play itself um i think we'll probably we'll we'll wrap with with this question so you're in toronto 1980 you're writing this for debut in 81 we're coming out of the 70s you're writing a play about italy in the grip of fascism x number of decades after the fact such a radically different time the moment we're in right now though it feels like <laughs> uh everything that's old is new again and and there's maybe maybe a dialogue between the current moment and Tamara that maybe even wasn't present at the time that the play was first
7: produced um yeah, no, I, I think I've sort of always tend to write about art, sex and politics uh, in various guises, I suppose. And this struggle between like love and duty uh, is sort of thematically um, uh, of great interest to me. Uh, part of my reason was I was kind of interested. Well, I, I was interested in two different aspects of it. One, my dad had casually kind of mentioned. Now, my dad was Slovene and he his, his dad uh, was some certainly a Nazi sympathizer, if not a Nazi. And my dad had run away from home because he wouldn't say Heil Hitler. And he had ended up in Italy and he got arrested in Italy and uh, no, before he got arrested, uh, uh, he he put up posters. He said for the fascists. I said, "Well, wh- why would you put up posters for the fascists?" And he said, "Well, they paid twice as much as the communists." And then <laughs> eventually, he gets arrested, and he spent the war as a DP. You know, he was digging trenches as a prisoner, a German prisoner, and then he escaped and came back to Slovenia where his brother was a communist who denounced him. And this is very political sort of thing. And my dad had to escape Slovenia and a big story. So I was very interested in the whole aspect of like, well, what would you do? And would you, you know, Denunzio was a guy like they said, he was the one man who could have stopped Mussolini's rise to power. And, and he was a writer and, and, and then he, uh, he, uh, but he got bought out, basically. They said to Mussolini, what are you going to do about denunzio? Because you know, he, he's a major threat to the fascist movement. And he said, if you have a tooth that hurts, you either pull it out, or fill it with gold. And he just basically bought Denunzio off. He gave him this house. He, he kept him in cocaine. He had a procurus for him that found all the, the women the guy could ever want. He had a live-in string quartet, a live-in architect, you know, um, and uh, the state published his complete works. Uh, you know, all he had to do was keep his mouth shut and not say anything against Mussolini. So I was always I was intrigued. Like, what would I do? I mean, would you sell out for for the for the for the money, the filthy lucre? Well, I don't know. I've made a career, uh, uh, you know, writing crappy TV shows. So I probably uh, <laughs> that speaks for itself. Uh, but at the time, that was a real struggle for me. You know, do you do do, do you pursue art? Uh, or, uh, and what is the role of the artist in society? And uh, you're right. I mean, it, it seems much more relevant. When, when I look at Tamera too around the world, you know, Tamera ran for like five years in, in Rio and the same in, in Argentina. It ran for a couple of years in Mexico City. It seems where, wherever there's, uh, you know, kind of a, uh, the move to the right, um, it becomes a kind of uh, interesting touchstone for people, you know, um, and it tries to capture that kind of uh, the nascences of, of the fascist personality. I think at the time I was reading Wilhelm Reich and the mass psychology of fascism, and a lot of books like that, and uh, so uh, they sort of spilled into uh, the unfolding drama. Well,
1: I think I think that uh, it it does it does ring true and it's, you know, it's, it's a, it's an OG immersive production uh, to, to say the least. And just to have it being republished right now is really kind of a, a, a gift to the form itself because so many people, they just go like, but how would I even start? How would I structure it? Like, yeah, I,
7: I think it is, it is exactly that. How do you even start? Like, all I know is you just, you write, the one scene and then I would always say like, okay, I got these 10 characters. Who's the most, I got one idea. These two people are having the following scene, but now I have eight other people to deal with. What could they be up to? And I'll do a group scene. And you know what I mean? Like I, and you do it in certain sections and move forward that way. But, uh, um, uh, I can't remember, you know, how many times I, I kept phoning the director saying, okay, I know I said I was going to do this, but life is too short. I, it's too much, you know. <laughs> and, I, uh, you know, a, a good reason the play is, was dedicated to Richard is because there's no way that any sane person would have just kept writing this thing, you know. Yeah. Uh, it, was, it just it was such an unwieldy. Uh, uh, beast to do as text. I I, I kind of lo- like immersive makes total sense to me. You know, uh, when you're you know, you're creating environments and you're there's a lot more room there. I hope when we do you know Tamara again that it'll be much more in the immersive thing. But you know, sort of, I want to reinvent it a little bit if we reimagine it for Los Angeles.
1: Well, John, thank you so much for the time today. And, okay. Uh, I'm so glad that uh, that the play's been republished.
7: Well, uh, it, it's good. It's good to uh, have it out there, and it's it's been fun to reminisce. <laughs>
1: There's actually a lot more of that interview with John, and we'll be dropping that into the podcast feed a little later this month. There's actually uh, a number of things that need to go into the backer feed as well. So uh, expect uh, expect a bunch of stuff to get sprinkled in here. Uh, I'm I'm taking a long, hard look at just what the kind of weekly rhythm and cadence of the show is. So expect the show to keep on mutating over the next few weeks. Uh, You know, we've already... We've already slowed the cadence down on the big produced pieces but uh, those are not done mostly because i really do enjoy making those and i just want to make sure that they get out to as many people as possible so i do feel ridiculous uh whenever i'm asking everyone to like and share if i wanted to be a youtube personality i'd be a youtube personality uh, but it does, it does make a world of difference. So that little stinger I did earlier about, uh, please share, please share, uh, particularly the show. And, uh, when we get in the mode of breaking up some of the, uh, the big pieces we've done, like the Meow Wolf piece and, and the Brassroots District piece, uh, we're going to drop those out on their own at the appropriate times and, uh, and let them breathe. And, uh, hopefully people will, will, uh, share them out, uh, when they're in kind of more digestible chunks. Experimentation. It's the name of the game. Keeping on, keeping on. Uh, there is a uh, a fair amount going on right now. Uh, so much of it is tied to everyone just kind of reorienting around the the Delta surge. Um, you know, we're in the planning stages of our 2022 summit and festival, uh, which is uh, planned right now for the top of January in Pasadena. This, of course, being the um, the remounting or the the actual fulfillment of our our goal of, of the summit and festival that was going to be in March of uh, 2020 before the pandemic came along and like everyone else, you know, we're we're taking a long hard look at what's going on and how do you make plans and I'm just really hoping that this Surge is the last time we see a surge and that everyone just sort of takes it seriously now Um and and does what needs to be done in order to uh, get this over with. Um, there's been, uh, you know, I think it's it's really impacted live in certain places. Other places are just kind of yoloing it, uh, and and that has an entirely separate set of of um, consequences for yoloing it. Um, I've heard good things about the way that the vaccine mandate stuff is working in New York. Uh, New Yorkers are just like, yeah. Here's another thing we got to do, and uh, that started to be uh, going to be the law of the land here in uh, Los Angeles County. Um, you know, LA doesn't always make it easy when it comes to making this work. So um, uh, hopefully, uh, this weirdly enough will actually make it easier for everyone to to get work up because um, there's some there's some really incredible stuff. I, I had the privilege of stepping on set this week. Um, over at uh or one of the uh the local uh, halloween time things and uh that, that was for a piece that will be coming up again the produce, produce pieces are still around uh at the top of next month we're going to drop that one and i was totally blown away by what i was seeing on set and uh i i hope that everyone uh here in the southland uh who, you know in our community gets to gets to check out that work so it's still still an exciting time um a weird time a difficult time, and we're all very exhausted with it being difficult. I know I'm, I'm just gut punched, and uh, I'm, 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 I'm done. But you know, please, you know. Thank you for wearing the mask, as, as I said, all pandemic long. Uh, and there is, you know, kind of a, a repivot to digital. There's some interesting digital work that's going on uh, right now. Uh, and I know some people like our our friend, uh, shivana Lachlan, is, you know, pivoting out of doing her live work right now, going back into doing digital. Uh, Third Rail Projects has some digital work that's coming up. Uh, I think it's, those tickets are on sale and, and it's live right now. Um, we we're getting a chance to check that out uh, later in, in the month, uh, and uh, there'll, be, there'll be reviews. Uh, they wanted that later in the run. So we're just all still figuring out as we go along like everybody else, but uh, we're not going anywhere. Um, yeah. All right. This has been a very classic uh, no program. <laughs> Coffee's not working, I guess. Uh, let's uh, let's do the credits, shall we? That's what this part of the show's usually been. Uh, a little bit of the old in 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 the new, as it were. Uh, the sustaining backers of No Persinium are Ari Herstand, Brittany, Deborah Robinson, Elaine, Emily Gillette, Lonnie Hansen, Paul Farnell, Mark Balthazar, Samuel Mustry, Sydney Guillory, and Jan Budman. Thank you all for helping me pay my rent. You can join them at patreon.com slash no Every, every bit helps. Um, the associate producer for this show is Parker Sella. Music for no Persinium is by Chris Porter of the speakeasy society here in Los Angeles. Indeed, special thanks to Siobhan Lachlan for voicing our intro. Catherine, Yu is the executive editor at no pro big shout out to everyone on the no pro team. Thank you all. Uh, for doing what you do. And I'm glad you're finally listening to the show. <laughs> they weren't listening. They're like, oh, wow, you really changed it. It's like, uh huh, I told you. My own people. My own people. See, you, I'm serious. You got to tell everyone if you like it. You got to tell people. They don't know. It's, oh, it's just, uh, we hated that. It's just no we're talking. This part is, uh, you wanted to go back? See, that's the thing. You want to go back to just me talking? Then, uh, Then don't share the show. There you go. <laughs> I can't use the carrot I'll use the stick This show is written Edited Hosted Produced Mixed And grumpily <laughs> Dialogued By yours truly Noah Nelson And until next time Especially if you're at Without Walls this weekend I will see you at the show